Well, this morning we're, we're pivoting away from uh, the series that, that we just completed on how it is that, that we could um, begin to micromanage small things in our lives to great effect to a place where I think it's more uh, uh, addressing the, the deeper needs of our spirit. As I, I look at our, our drummer who was just up here, uh, Connor Jones, Connor uh, was probably born around the year 2000, which for some of us, that was not very long ago. For others, it's like, hey, bro, I wasn't even around in 2000. So wherever you're at on that continuum, that's okay. But the thing that I want you to understand is a year after he was born, there was something that happened that was just a, it was a dramatic shift in the, in, in the air. It was something that people didn't feel before that they, well, it became the new normal. It was a, a moment where everything in the world changed. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. And it was, it was 9-11. It was that fateful day when if you've been on this earth for long enough and you know what it was like before, you could say, yeah, it was a change. It was palpable. And perhaps in the last almost 20 years where we've been living in the wake of everything that's emerged out of that, it has affected us. And in ways that maybe we don't even see and maybe in ways that we don't realize that there are other possibilities. So when you look at that spark plug up there and you see that phrase, spark the joy, it's in light of everything that many of us have gone through and experienced up until the present that uh, I, I, I think we, we need to readdress this topic. And it happened for me whenever I... I looked at um, myself, and I was just sitting there in, in the pew listening to a sermon from Matt Cutler where he introduced a theme from, uh, uh, fr- from the scripture, but he illustrated it with the notion that Marie Kondo, as she was looking at the lives of individuals and asking them the question, what is it that you need to declutter in your life so that you can experience something that will spark joy in your life? And it really was an exercise in reducing things so that the things that you do have that are meaningful to you can continue to elevate your life and your well-being and your significance. And there was something about what she said and, what, and why she said it, when she said it, that, that, that affected me a lot. And so all of those things are going into this message series because I honestly think that there's a lot of us who for a long time haven't really had that deep sense of joy regarding your place in this world that maybe you lost it way back before then. It's been, it's been uh, a, a long 19 years for some because it, it's like we pivoted from living in a moment where joy was kind of like a given to now it's no longer there. It's been replaced by something called fear and worry and anxiety, insecurity, constant paranoia over threats. And many of us have tuned ourselves to the news media asking the question behind all of the bad news, when is our joy going to come back? And maybe you haven't really thought about it that way. But perhaps as we go into this message series, it will just be a, a, a reason for us to reconsider the joy that we have had in front of us the whole time and to rediscover it 
And maybe you've been living that joy, joyless existence long enough and you're ready for a change. And what I want to do is bring you to that place and perhaps present that thing that will help you to spark the joy. And as God is looking at each of us, he has embedded within his created order a, 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 a quality that has a lot to do with joy. When he made the world, he said, as he's making each part of it, it is good. And each facet of creation, he just wanted to underscore how the world that we're embedded in is a good place. It's God's good creation. But I think so many of us have forgotten that. Or maybe we're not seeing it anymore. And then when God made us, man and woman, male and female, in his image, he said, oh, that is very good. And there was a certain joy that God took in just looking at his crowning achievement embedded in an environment that was designed to reinforce joy. It was for his good pleasure that he made us and made everything else. And it was by design that was a reciprocal relationship that we were supposed to experience good pleasure in relation to him. But something happened along the way to that ever happening. And it involved, of course, you know, the story of the garden and how we rebelled and how we became willful and how we decided that we would find joy in other places than in the places that had to do with God. And in our world, your world and mine, perhaps we're hanging out in those places and as we do that, we don't feel that joy that God intended for us to have. And maybe for some of us, as we're starting to get into good habits and micromanage a few basic things like Bible reading and discovering God again in a personal relationship through prayer and finding him in connection with each other, maybe we need to focus a little bit on this subject. Because I think that as we do, that joy that you lost may come back again. And I want to point you to the source of that joy. But before I begin, I want to begin... Uh, the introduction to this process uh, by asking God to be a part of it. Would you bow with me? Father, we know that in that thin space between where we are and where you are, there is a, a, a sense of connection that we have because of your son, the blood of Christ that has eliminated that barrier and cleansed us and made that opening available where we can access you once again. And I pray, Father, that as we do, you would reset things in our lives so that we could experience those things that you've intended from the very beginning. We thank you for rescuing us through your son. And for those who haven't fully experienced that, I pray that somewhere along the way, they would say, yeah, I, I, I want that too. And I pray, Father, that as we move into the series, that if there are those who are caught in a negative loop, that they could replace that with something that would be more life-affirming and sustaining, something that you purchased us for. And I just ask that you would speak to our hearts now as we move into your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we move into this territory uh, regarding joy and your life and mine in the Lord, and maybe how we can recapture it once again, I just want to start by looking at Marie Kondo once again and her really axiom that if you, if you want to declutter and you want to relate to things, maybe it's a grief process of getting rid, rid of something, but it's also a process of experiencing joy from something that you want to hang on to. And there's a video that 
summarizes that briefly and then takes it a step further. And I'm going to use that as a basis for helping us to, to kind of go into the territory that we're going to be going into in this message. So let's show the video and then afterwards, hopefully I can make it clear uh, where, where this is going. Hi, I'm Amir. Does the act of buying things actually bring happiness? Unless you don't have Netflix or friends, you've probably heard of Marie Kondo. She's the organizing consultant changing the way people all over the world think about their stuff by asking the question, does this spark joy? Choose items that spark joy for you. Spark joy. If it does, you keep it. If it doesn't, you declutter it. What's decluttering? Decluttering is the process of spreading out all your stuff on the floor and deciding what should stay and what should go. It should be able to stand upright on its own. It's time to get to the root of the problem. What if we're asking the wrong question? What if instead of asking, does this spark joy once the thing is in your house, we ask, will this spark joy before you buy it? In other words, does the act of buying things actually bring happiness? That's the question one professor set out to answer. She learned that people who were found to be more materialistic associated future purchases with strong, positive emotions. The mere thought of buying things sparked feelings of joy and excitement, regardless of whether they were thinking of buying a car or a toaster. To buy or not to buy, that is the question. But get this, after they bought the thing, they experienced what was called a hedonic decline. A hedonic decline is when repeated exposure to a stimulus reduces a person's pleasure. It's kind of like eating candy every day. The first couple days, you're like... But after a week, you're like... So the study concludes that wanting something and buying it makes people happy. But after the purchase, when you actually own the thing, it does not spark joy. So what does spark joy? Well, studies show that the act of giving actually brings much more joy and satisfaction than the act of getting. When people focus on an outcome, like getting paid or buying stuff, they fall into a comparison mindset, where they become unhappy because they're comparing themselves with other people. But when people focus on an action, like donating to charity or volunteering, they compare less and instead experience each act of giving as a unique happiness-inducing event. So how about, instead of buying a jacket because you want one, give a jacket to someone who needs one. This is the type of joy that will last long after you've uploaded your outfit of the day on Instagram. The best time to ask if something sparks joy isn't after you've had it, but before you buy it. Let's live our life in a way where we're doing things that really matter, and we don't even need to spend our lives decluttering. Thanks for watching, and we wanna know, what brings you true happiness? Okay, that's a big question. And I want to I kind of map out where we've been and where we're going so far. So far we have Marie Kondo saying something that resonates with so many people, and that is here's an activity that you can do that will spark joy. So the first thing is joy is obviously something that people are concerned about. Why? Because I think they have been lacking it for a very long time. And as they lack it, they're looking for whatever pathway is available to find it 
And many times they're not looking at the church to find it. And for reasons I'll go into uh, in, in just a little bit, I'll tell you why. But in the meantime, the question in the background of the decluttering movement is, why is it that, why is it that we have all of this clutter to begin with? Why is it that we've needed to buy this uh, uh, w- w- to satisfy something in our lives, uh, this repeated trip, uh, trips to the, to the places of um, uh, whatever our favorite shopping venue is uh, to, 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 to consume and to accumulate so many goods that we get to the place where we just are overwhelmed by the sheer amount of things we have to manage. Between 2001 and now, if you can just imagine all of the container ships that have gone back and forth between ourselves and the Far East, most of them bringing things over and then returning empty so they can bring more things over. And that process repeated itself so much that people are even talking about living in shipping containers. This has somehow become front and center in, in so many ways in our lives that we, we think about it constantly. But why is it that we had to have so many things brought to us from overseas that would, well, in, a, in, in its own way, help us with the lack of joy that we have? I mean, they even widened the Panama Canal so they could get bigger ships in so that we could have more stuff, only for us to say, now, wait a minute. We've been buying all this stuff to try to fill a void of the emptiness that's in our lives and the lack of joy. And we know that we have this impulse that says you need to buy something. And I get it. I just bought a purple car this year. And I've been anticipating buying this purple car. And it has sparked joy. But I am like anybody else who buys anything. I know that that joy has limitations. And I also live with someone who does like to shop. And her expression is generally when she's done, which I'm approving of, it's not so much the question, how much did I spend, but how much did I save? I don't know if that's ever crossed your mind if you're a shopper, and I'm not picking on just females, but I have to think that there is a spark of joy when you, when you look at that top number that says, oh man, that's a lot of money, and then that bottom number that says, Wow, look how much I saved. And there's just like this radiance that comes out of that that's so joyful. But you also know that that process has a very limited shelf life, and so you you do have to repeat it periodically. And that may be, you may be thinking, well, that's primarily a female thing, but guys, we have our own version of trying to fill the deficit in our lives where we need something to spark joy. So we're all kind of looking for it, aren't we? And we're looking for it in places that, well, that are more than willing to deliver it, but also, like so many things, it's a pretty good case of over-promising and under-delivering. And we're at a place where 20 years out, we're saying, I have so much crap. I, I can't manage it all. I can't keep it all. And... Even places like Habitat and Goodwill and others, they're like, we have so much crap that we don't even, we can't even take any more of it. And it's just a statement that says something has tried to fill that void in us. And it is clearly obvious at this point in our lives that that's not the answer. 
And there are other people who will say, well, let's take it a step further and not fill that void through trying to find joy through material things. Let's dematerialize and declutter. And maybe they're onto something. Maybe it's just instincts telling us, yeah, this seems to have some merit to it. And I, I wouldn't disagree. And at 55 and having been victim, or should I say, having been a participant in that whole process, I'm the first to tell you that I have stuff listed on Craigslist. Come and get it. Because I can't manage it all. But there's something else underneath that impulse to declutter that I think is getting at the deeper need. It isn't just that I can't manage it all. It's also that... It's not providing the answer that I need because maybe temporarily, bless you, there's a purchase that you make that takes the pain away for a little bit. And maybe we're getting at something here, the pain, the struggle, the thing that you brought into this room, the worry that you have, where you're at in this moment on the timeline, facing a dragon that you've never faced before with an expectation that, yeah, God can help me somehow, but I've never been here. So my fear and my doubt and my worry and my frustration are just as amplified as they've ever been. Now, I know a shopping trip can take care of that. And, you know, if you're following your wife to the mall, you're thinking, Lord, just make this quick. And if she's following you to Home Depot, she's saying, Lord, just get him out of here fast. So we have our own issues there for sure. But in, in, in many cases, it's a way of escaping that which, well, that which we are having a hard time dealing with. And so here's, the, here's where we're at so far. There has been a joylessness in the air. There is a need for joy. We've tended to exercise our ability to buy and consume to address that need. But the problems are still there. Are you with me? Those problems at any stage in our life's journey take on their own flavor, but the pattern is always the same. We have something that we're staring at, it's insurmountable, and we don't know the way around it. And maybe we don't escape through materialism. Maybe it's, as they mentioned on there, a a digital space that we inhabit for just a little bit. And maybe we can curate a sense of ourselves in such a way that we get some likes that are affirming. And out of that sort of recognition, we find a a little bit of joy. I'm not saying any of that's bad either. We need to purchase things to live. And God made creation that's good for things to enjoy. And it's not bad to connect with people that you can't see in your physical proximity. But it's how these things have tried to provide an answer to a deeper need that they simply cannot, that I'm concerned about. And what really bothers me is how, as all of this is going on in your life and mine, for 19 years, we've turned on the news, and the news has tried to do their best to find things to share that are bad. This is bad, that's bad, that's bad. Well, Why is it that everybody all of a sudden feels like it's bad? It's really bad. It's and there's sort of a negativity that feeds all of it. Now, this is the social and material 
and perhaps emotional landscape that we've been living in for a long time. And it might be why you're asking the spiritual question, how is it that God can help me in what seems like a pretty helpless situation? And beyond that, how can I rediscover joy? Remember when you were a kid? You didn't have to worry, did you? Mom and dad took care of you, and for many of us. And we could play, and we could just go to bed and not think about, you know, nuclear disarmament or trade wars or who's in office. That's, that, all that stuff is not interesting to me at my eight-year-old version of myself. And so I was filled with joy. But when, in my case, the 55-year-old version is looking at these real-life, real-world problems, and I'm not hearing good answers, I'm not in a position to experience a whole lot of joy because I'm, quite honestly, if I'm not fearful, I'm anxious and I'm worried. Now, maybe that's you. I can certainly say that in my case, it, it definitely is true. And I also know one more thing as I paint that bleak picture because I, I honestly believe there's an answer. And in this bleak picture, there's a mechanism inside each of us that neuroscientists say that's a reward mechanism. And it goes something like this. I see something neg negative, I dwell on it, and pretty soon I'm looking for more negative stuff. And there actually is a hit of dopamine that your brain will feed you when you, find, when you discover something, ne something else negative to ruminate on. And as you continue to reinforce that, you continue to get rewarded by your brain. Have you ever been around a person who's just negative all the time? They're probably not even aware that this mechanism is at work in, 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 in their chemistry that it is actually malfunctioning in the way that it's not intended to function. It is just doing what it does, but the subject matter is the wrong subject matter. God didn't make us that way. He definitely made us to have a reward mechanism for certain things. And that's really what I want to get at. It is... It is it is really when he becomes a central part of that picture that that starts to work out. Now, tipping my hand a little bit, the one thing I know about believers is that those who are kind of getting their sea legs in the faith discover that when you become a follower of Jesus, your problems don't go away per se, but your ability to relate to those problems in a constructive and actually joyful way uh, starts, to, starts to unfold. There's a capacity that we didn't even realize we have that we can face problems in a spirit of hope and ultimately even find joy. How do I know? Well, what I want to do at this point is just assure you that it is the case, but now I want to look at the scripture and find out why it's the case. So if you have the book of Philippians uh, in your New Testament or a Bible in front of you and and, and you can look at it if you like, or if not, you can just look on the screen. 
Um, it's the first chapter, and in it, uh, I just, I'll just want to share this with you. Um, when, when you find the books of the Bible, many of them are written by different people who are guided by God to help us to understand what we needed to hear as believers through space and time. And one of those books is the book of Philippians. And if you read it, you discover something about it that has a lot to do with joy. Number one, it has more references to joy than any other New Testament writing, any other writing of the Apostle Paul. You repeatedly hear these words, joy and rejoice. It's almost like he can't help himself. He says it so often. But what is kind of strange about the way he says it and where he says it has a lot to do with what he was going through when he wrote this letter. I want to show you a map real quickly before I show you the scripture. And I want to set this up if I can. The map in front of you is the Mediterranean Sea. And off to the bottom right, you have the city of Jerusalem, which is kind of where the Apostle Paul came from. And if you were to sail on a boat up through uh, that area where the arrow is pointing, you come to a, a town, a sea town called Philippi. All right, you with me so far? There was a, a fellow by the name of the Apostle Paul who had a very powerful encounter with the Lord. And it was his mission to tell as many people as he could the message of the good news. And he was so driven by this, it was energized not by obligation, but believe it or not, a deep joy regarding what that message can do when it impacts the lives of the people that hear it, himself included, myself included, many other people in this room included. And what the Apostle Paul is going through when he writes this letter to the Philippians is this. In the middle of the map, there's a town called Ephesus. And it is a place that is hard for us to imagine, but just imagine this. There's a temple in this city called the Temple of Diana. And it is a temple that you go whenever you need some productivity in your life, whether that productivity is more children or you need uh, more crops or you need your business to thrive. You go to Ephesus and you pay somebody uh, uh, money for an offering or an object that you can purchase that will facilitate that process of connecting to a deity that will bless you in that way. And that was a very strong belief in that region of the world. So much so, it was like a wonder of the world, the, the temple to Diana. And Paul is in this town. And the interesting thing about this town, it not only has a very strong following of people devoted to that religion, but it has a whole industry of silversmiths and woodworkers and people that are curio makers and others that their whole reason for being is to produce objects that you can look upon and pray to that deity and trust that it will, it will give you blessing. And that's a pretty big deal in the minds of the people in that area. And people would just flock from all over the place to go there. The second thing about this space is the government had established a, basically a retirement community for uh, ex-military uh, and ex-government workers who just wanted to represent the Roman, the Roman Empire in, in their own little governmental clique. And as a result of that, it was strategic because they wanted people who were dwelling there to understand that, yeah, you can give your devotion to Diana, but remember also that Caesar is the one responsible 
for us having world peace. He's the one who is sort of like the God-man. He's sort of divine. He's a divine emperor who's a human being. He's a pretty special person. And there was a word that people said regarding him, and it was euangelion. It's the word that we use as Christians for good news. The good news is Caesar is Lord. All right, you with me? So you got a bunch of government people saying over here at every breath, Caesar is Lord. And that's good news because he's why we're enjoying this life of luxury. And you have people over here who are saying, we make a lot of money off of the trade that happens from the purchase of our, of our uh, idol-worshiping objects. And now you have the Apostle Paul coming into this environment with these two forces powerfully at work politically on the side. And he's saying, hey, people, I know you've tried that, and I know you've tried that, and I know you're like, not sure that either one of them are getting the job done. Let me tell you something that will. And so he said, I want to tell you, it's actually not a thing. It's a person. And his name is Jesus. And he begins to share who Jesus was, what he accomplished, and how the dark forces of the empire and the dark forces of the Artemis uh, uh, worship would, would, would have a, 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 a bad dark side to uh, all the good things they offered. And people were saying, yeah, we're uneasy with those two arrangements. What do you got for us? And the Apostle Paul just began to share. And people said, now that is what I've been looking for for a long time. And the way that they knew it is it created a sense of deep joy in them that was lasting and satisfying, that didn't have like a shelf life that would only go so far and then it would go away like they'd experienced with the other two options, but rather it was something that was, well, it changed their whole way of life and it also empowered their way of life that, well, it, it just, it, it created a connection with their creator and they knew it. And the church just began to grow and explode because people were primed for it. And just like we were primed to hear a word of joy from Marie Kondo because we've been so joyless for so long, they were primed in the same way. And the Apostle Paul is just bursting at the seams to make sure that more people know. And if you look at Philippi on the map, it is the first city in Europe and he just has this vision. What if everybody in Europe heard the good news? But there's only one problem. You see, something bad happened on the way to talking bad about the idol industry. You know, the Diana cult. And there was something bad that happened along the way to discounting worshiping the emperor. And people took note of it. And as we read in the scripture... There's sort of a meme that starts. You guys familiar with the idea of a meme? In the last group, they're a little bit older than most of us in the room. I said, you guys all know what a meme is? And somebody told me, yeah, I heard somebody talking behind me. They're like, we don't know what a meme is. We've never heard of a meme before. Well, if you want to know, just ask your grandkid or your son or if you're that place. You know, this is a meme. Yeah, that's a meme, okay? The respect is overwhelming, isn't it? If you've ever seen a meme, and hopefully there's no more, but maybe there are obviously more memes. So today at church, a guy in a suit tried to drown me, and 
I kid you not, my family just stood there taking pictures. Okay, it's another tradition. They, they, they baptize babies in that tradition. Well, there is a sense that a picture is worth a thousand words, and the Apostle Paul was actually being memefied by people, and they were saying, yeah, this Jesus and this Paul, who's now in jail, of course, is, you know, they're, they're telling this goofy, far-off far tale about, yeah, he died, and his blood was shed on the cross, and the curse was lifted, and the access to God was opened up, and on the third day he rose from the dead, and they were just kind of making fun of the whole thing. And Paul's aware of it. But this is where it's different. Regardless of the fact that a lot of people are making fun of him and making fun of his Lord, he's not that upset about it. Matter of fact, he's got joy. He even goes so far as to say, and this is really weird, but let's go to our text right now. And I, I want to say a couple of things. The first one is, he's in jail, and everybody's upset with him. And in a Roman jail, when you go there, they don't feed you water or food or provide any sort of um, any incidentals. They're just basically saying, you're on your own. Hopefully you got some people outside, outside the slammer, who will come and visit you regularly and give you some food. And if not, that's on you, guy. You got yourself in this mess. And the second thing that could happen is they didn't have a universal human rights declaration. They didn't have the ACLU or due process. They basically said this. At any time, we can come in and we can kill you. And nobody's going to say a word. You got it? And so Paul is living under these kind of pressures. Half the town hates him, especially the elites. The government can do with him whatever they want, whenever they want. And he's hungry. Not exactly a recipe for joy. But yet when he writes this letter under those conditions, joy is really like, embedded in all of it and the question that I ask and I and I hope you're asking as well in the middle of my life under the conditions that I'm going through is there a place for joy and I would like to say certainly Marie Kondo is saying some good things and certainly it is good to serve other people because Jesus said the son of man came not to serve or not, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. They're on the right track, but Paul takes it a step further and says, that's actually an expression of the joy rather than the place to find it. So here, here we go. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all are making my prayer with joy. There's something about these people when he thinks about them He's like, oh, man, I know my, my place right now is awful, but when I think of them, I'm happy. And then he goes on to say in verse 4 of, of chapter 1 of Philippians, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And as he's looking at his friends up the coast in the city of Philippi, and he's in a jail somewhere in Ephesus, he sees them as partners. Because essentially, it's believed by many people that while he's in jail, the Philippians 
would send people by boat down to Ephesus and provide provisions. And they would provide words of encouragement. And it was like, I don't feel disconnected at all because I'm, I'm actually connected to a community of people that are filled with the same joy that I have. And they're so filled that other people are being drawn into that space and wanting to become part of it because, well, they can't find joy anywhere else either. And the Apostle Paul is just thinking, man, they are connected. And they are getting it. And cool things are happening in this church. And then he goes on to say these words. Let's just move on. In, the, in, in verses um, uh, 6, it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a sense that as people are moving into joy... And the things that produce joy as they're facing their struggles, but knowing that there is a power at work in their lives to help them with each and every one of them, they're just growing in this awareness. They're growing in the knowledge and the wisdom of the love of Jesus. And he talks about that in, in, in the following verses. But what I want to focus on is I just kind of bring this introductory message to, um, to, to a conclusion or what he says in verses 18 through 26. He's in prison. Life is not so good, but friends are helping him out. And he's wondering, is tonight going to be the night where the jailer is going to come in and they're going to kill me? And he's telling us, this is, my, this is my attitude about that threat. What then? Well, in every way, whether it's in pretense or truth, if they're memifying me and Jesus, that's fine because the word's getting out and people are thinking about, what about this cross? What about this empty tomb? What about this Jesus? He's saying, it's good. I don't care if they're making fun of me. If the word's getting out, people are going to find that joy. It just has a way of making itself known. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. There's something at work in the unseen realm, in the faith of the people that are praying for him, and in his own trust in the God that has delivered him before, that he is doing the math of his circumstances, and he's saying, the math says this is the end, but I say because I have a deeper joy centered in a deeper power, centered in a person who embodies this power named Jesus I'm not afraid and then he goes on to say this as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed but that with full courage that is full trust in the things of God as always Christ will be honored in my body whether in life or death let's stop for a minute Oh, let's, let's read that. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When Paul is writing these words, there's one person who is embedded in every part of his, of his whole existence. And that's Jesus. If I'm alive, Jesus is in my world. And if I'm dead then I'm more or less in his face-to-face. -face. It's all good. I'm not concerned. Go to the previous scripture if we can. We just saw. And it says, um, 
Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. I think one reason why people don't go to church is because people who go to church, now I'm not talking about you guys, but I'm just talking about people that are disconnected. I think one of the reasons is, is because they've looked at Christians and they've seen the same level of joylessness on their faces as they've seen in the faces of people that are trying to make it happen without him. And my concern is, maybe we've been attending to other things that we should obviously care about, but maybe we've been attending them the wrong way. And there's nothing that undermines the good news than a joyless spirit. Because the good news is designed to create hope. And hope is a way of saying, no matter what I'm facing, the power of the God who created it all is at work and I can trust him and he is trustworthy. And that changes everything. And I don't know what you are going through that is feeding your joylessness, your hopelessness, that is maybe perhaps feeding your negativity. And maybe you're on that treadmill of feeding the negativity so that you can get a reward so that you can feed more negativity. And maybe you need to stop. Because for a believer, when we start to just digest what Paul is saying, it begins to fuel a hope inside of us. So that when I'm facing that struggle that I'm going through, that health scare, when I'm facing that overwhelming set of circumstances that I've never had to face before. When I'm looking at financial issues and I don't know how it's going to work, when I'm considering doing something but knowing that it's going to take an act of God to get it done, in all of those things, the answer that the Apostle Paul would have for us, and he mentions it several times in in this book, is to ask God about it. Pray about it. And then trust that whatever the answer is, he's heard and he's going to work. And we've had some prayer uh, praises. I mean, one of them that just came up in another class, besides Alex and besides your grand granddaughter who was born way, way premature, and besides other miracles that have happened, and Jerry Zimmerman's dad, and Tracy Ewing, who last year we thought, we don't know if he's going to make it or not, saying this week, all clear fit as can be. You know, I see that stuff and I say it's not hopeless. It's not the end. And I look at other avenues that aren't quite so deeply personal when it comes to health. And I like to tell people it's not hopeless. That with God, there's always a way. And people need to see that sense of hope in your faces. And if not, then they'll just keep turning to the Marie Kondos of the world. And it'll help some. But all she's doing is just helping us to see what we should already know. That we need to declutter. That there are things in our physical landscape that definitely need to go the way of Craigslist. And there are things in our spiritual landscape that are also getting in the way. Maybe one way to declutter is just turn the news off 
I mean, if all it's going to say is it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, then does it really matter that you even watch it? Do you want to feed your spirit on that stuff? And maybe you just need to ask the question, is the information that I'm taking into my soul sparking joy or not? And I'm talking godly joy. And if it's not, declutter. And maybe you have to grieve it a little bit, but then send it on its way. And maybe that limited space that we have, we need to just consider as space for him. The Apostle Paul did. And he's so filled with this that he's looking at his circumstances. That garb's going to come around around 9, maybe the end, maybe not. Who knows? I'm okay. <laughs> I'd really rather be with the Lord because, well, to be honest with you, there's a lot of problems down here, and I've had to go through a lot of them. But if I have to stay here, I want to stay here and continue to make people aware of that joy. I don't want to be ashamed. Ashamed of what? Ashamed of not displaying and living in that joy in such a way that people can't see it. I mean, you don't have to. You don't have to be consumed by the negativity of the world. I mean, what is the opposite of faith? It's fear and doubt. And faith is like, not just a blind faith, but it's a trust in a God who says, I am with you. And that faith is also the belief that, you know, we can only do so much, God. And God says, I know you can only do so much. That's the way I made you. It's okay. But that extra that you need, that's why I'm here. I'm here to help you with the things that you are unable to help yourself with. That's faith. But how often we do the math because we just think that's it. And Paul's like, the math is pretty simple here. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's my joy. He goes on to say exactly that. And it says, if I'm living in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. <laughs> I'd like to go, but I also need to stay. Then he says this. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I want to be with Christ, but I also know that to remain is important for people that I have to build up in, 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 this, in this way of life. And then he goes on to say this. He says, I'm convinced that as I remain and continue with you all for your progress and for your joy in the faith, which is his goal, that they would mature and they would increase in joy and that as they did people would look at your life and it'd be like that angled mirror where we're connected to God and then as we are it just reflects back the image of God through our lives to people that need to see it and he's saying that is how it happens that's joy at work alive in you because you are deeply connected to a God you trust and who is trustworthy and is the source of every form of joy that you have the lesser joys. I'm not saying that you can't find joy in your hobbies. I enjoy my new car, but it is not like the end all and be all. It does so much. And you have things that you enjoy, and I think that's awesome. 
But if you don't have the joy giver in your life, it's, it's going to turn from technicolor to black and white. And you're going to think, i got to find something to replace it. There is no something. It's a someone. And you are either close to him or you're not. And it's not like he doesn't want to get close. He truly does. But we have to say, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready for that. Because nothing else is working. What sparks joy for you? I would say that maybe if you haven't looked in this direction and asked God the question, Lord, what would my life look like with all that's going on, but yet with you in the center? Would it change how I approach my problems? Would I discover a hope? Could I see how you work everything together for good? Could I even know that oftentimes it's through the painful stuff that the good stuff happens? And you find that along the way, you start to see what's been in front of you the whole time. And maybe this will spark not only your joy, but your awareness of what God's up to in your life. I just want to end with prayer, and my hope is that God can begin to move you out of things that are characterized by doubt and fear and worry and anxiety. And at every turn, no matter what it is in the course of your day, you're just inviting him into that. And maybe the first step is just into your life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that as we read the good news and we find how much it saturates our beings, we discover that it is the signpost to the reality of the power of the blood of Jesus to set us free and the life-giving, that abundant life-giving presence that begins to take residence in our lives in ways that change what we can't change on our own and gives us a sense of the possibilities that on our own are just simply impossibilities. That helps us to discover that you made us for something better. Lord, I just ask that if there's anyone in the room that needs to move out of that old script with that old propaganda, that the sky is falling and that the world is at the end and that we just need to wring our hands in despair and replace it with a confident trust that in the middle of all of that, in you there is a joy and there is a peace and there is a love and there's a hope and there's everything that we've been looking for the whole time. I pray that you would just manifest those realities more and more in the lives of our people here today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.